Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with Ryan Pyle, television host and adventurer, whose shows include Expedition Asia, Extreme Treks, and Tough Rides. Ryan's shows are broadcast in almost every television territory around the world, with the Travel Channel and BBC Worldwide. In China, his shows are broadcast on China Travel Channel, as well as Youku, reaching hundreds of millions of viewers. Ryan dropped by Asia Society Hong Kong to conduct the following interview. Ryan, thank you for coming. Thank, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, we understand you just flew in uh, last night and you're leaving again uh, later this evening? Uh, tomorrow morning. Oh, wow. Sure. So, it's quite the jet set lifestyle you live. Um, uh, as you know, uh, as we discussed, uh, this is the Movers and Shakers podcast, and uh, the audience is more towards the youth of today, and we want to give them some advice because a lot of them feel a little bit lost. Okay. Uh, well, I'm honored to be considered a mover and a shaker. Uh, before we get started, we just want to know, um, uh, what was the first hour of your day like? First hour of my day? Um, I like to wake up. I like to eat right away. Um, I do. I really like to eat right away because I feel like... Once I start eating, I, it kind of jump starts my body. It starts to um, get me thinking, and uh, and I like to listen to a podcast or two. Um, my, okay. Yeah, my favorite podcasts can be, you know, BBC News, Financial Times News, uh, The Economist. These are kinds of things that I just like to see what has been going on the last day or so, or while I was sleeping, and then um, and then after that, I'll kind of get into you know, turn off the podcasts and start doing a bit of thinking about what I need to do for the day instead of like jumping right into emails or, or, um, or jumping right into kind of actionable work. Maybe I'll just sit and kind of ponder for a good half hour or so and kind of plan out my day and what needs to be done and what are the most important things. Cause I find that if I, you know, getting right into your emails or something like that can just be a, a black hole where you, next thing you know, like three hours later, you're just typing endlessly and you haven't really done any deep thinking. Right. So I like to try to use my brain a little bit um, first thing in the morning, if I can. In terms of that deep thinking, uh, is this part of your spiritual practice? Uh, I wouldn't really consider myself overly spiritual. Uh, I think that uh, I'm always thinking about you know ways to communicate, ways to tell stories, uh, ways to engage with with people in a meaningful way. So. Um, whether it's television ideas or people I need to speak with or um, just key things I need to get done today or maybe I need to research a location for something I need to do next month. You know, these are kinds of just planning out the structure of my day um, and prioritizing it. Do you have any uh, tips or tools to stay organized? I make a lot of notes. Uh, I make a lot of lists. I really like that. I always have, you know, loose paper and a pen nearby. I'm always jotting things down. And, uh, you know, some people say don't make lists, just do. But I like to make a list and then do it. Right. And, um, cross and it off. I like to cross things <laughs> off. I'm a big crosser <laughs> off of things. That's a huge thing. Of, uh, that's a huge moment of satisfaction for me. And at the end of the day, if I had eight things on my list and seven of them are crossed off, I do feel like, okay, now I can have a whiskey and relax. Oh, it's an accomplishment there. Yeah. <laughs> I like to have little, little goals set like that. And, um, and it's, uh, it's good to kind of lay things down and then actually execute, which, uh, which I feel is super important. 
Now you're you're a you're a big traveler. You you travel three hundred days of the year, um, and an important thing, sort of, a, for from a health perspective, is sleep. How do you uh, how do you get a good night's sleep uh, with this schedule? I um I sleep like a baby. I've been very lucky. I think, um, you know, I I don't really suffer from anxiety. I I try to exercise as much as I can. Um, I really do turn off my phone at night. I don't bring it to bed with me or anything like that. I, uh, I'm tired at the end of the day. Like I make sure that I'm up early and that my days are active and that when it's time to go to bed, I'm really done. Uh, another thing is I, I eat very light in the evening. Um, so I don't often have dinner or if I do, it's very light so that, um, I don't have a heavy meal sitting in my stomach because that can often affect my sleeping quality. Mm. I try not to drink too much alcohol. That can also affect my sleeping quality. So I really do prioritize my sleep. And and a lot of people say, oh, you travel so much, you must be jet lagged all the time. It's like, yeah, but I still sleep, you know, eight or nine hours a night. Like right. it's, it might just be from 7 p.m. till 4 a.m. Right. But then if it's 4 a.m. and I'm in a another city I can still wake up and go to the gym and do some work and and then I have to wait a little while for breakfast to come to open up and and then I'll have (laughs) breakfast so you know as long as you're as long as you're kind of sleeping um doesn't really matter where you are or what the jet lag is and and you know I just try to follow a few of those little steps to make sure that uh I'm getting the sleep I need because if you're not sleeping you're done like your brain doesn't work your body doesn't work you're not thinking you're going to be constantly distracted, constantly tired. It's uh, not good for anyone, especially if you've got business partners or clients that right. expect things from you. Now, as young people, going back to um, uh, our youth, we usually have influences that we remember, father, mother, teacher, friend, mentor. What's the most important lesson that someone you looked up to ever taught you? You know, I was... Um I, uh, you know, I, was, I think I was very lucky. Uh, my father was in the Olympics. He represented Canada wow. uh, in water polo. And he was in the 1972 Olympics in Munich. And I think from a young age, he really instilled in myself and my brother, I have a younger brother, um, just the importance of doing work, putting in the effort, putting in the time, uh, making it worthwhile, um, you know, trying your best. And, uh, and also, too, not... not um, not feeling bad about failing, you oh. know, because I think the great thing about sports, and, and I, w- I would completely suggest that the first 22 years of my life, everything I learned came through my sporting career and, and through influences of my father and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, you know, this idea of playing sports is really wonderful and it transcends... Um, you know, into the business world very seamlessly because in sports, you know, you have to work hard, you have to train hard, but you also have to accept defeat because you're going to lose. And when you lose and when you make mistakes, you know, you you still have to wake up the next day and, and, and come out and play again. And, and I think that's such, a, um, that's such an important thing to really understand and embrace, you know, because I think a lot of people paralyze themselves and are afraid to take risk because they're afraid of failure. But failure is beautiful. Mm. You know, like if you want to be constantly motivated and if you want to constantly achieve new things, you have to embrace failure because you're going to make mistakes and then you're going to learn um, and then you're going to win. And, and you know, you don't, I always say that you don't learn anything, you know, when you're in your comfort zone and everything's going really smoothly. 
You only learn when things start to get bumpy, when things start to get difficult. And you know, when things do start to get difficult and you feel tired and you feel like, you know, maybe you're not gonna be able to do this, that's the moment where you're like, you should be, you should be thinking that you're onto something. You know, the moment people start telling you that what you're doing is like wrong or incorrect or they don't believe in you or this kind of thing, that's when you should be like, yeah, I think I'm onto something. I just need to, I just need to keep pushing through this. What's that Winston Churchill quote he's got? If you think you're going through hell, keep going. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's, I think, you know, whether you're a software engineer or an entertainer or, you know, just a parent even, I mean, it's these there's challenges every day at every level in every direction and um and you just kind of have to embrace them and, and continue moving forward one step at a time now, staying on this failure uh, sort of track how has a great failure in your life set you up for later success well i think i think that um you know i came to china at a relatively young age and wanted to tell stories about china and i think that's a you know a very easy way to set up the first part of my career. So I, I came to China and I was working as a freelancer for people like the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, all, all newspapers and magazines that if there's anyone listening to this podcast under the age of 30 might not really recognize anymore because <laughs> they, they don't play such an important role in their lives. But, but 15 years ago, they were everything. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that happened to me was is I worked for eight or ten years and I became a pretty successful you know photographer and writer and I had a very nice career and uh, in 2008 again something some of the listeners might not know but like we had a huge financial crisis um, when a bank uh, an investment bank called Lehman's Brothers collapsed uh, in the United States and they went bankrupt and it sent shockwaves through the financial system and it led to a housing problem anyways this kind of also wiped out the publishing industry and all of a sudden, people like the New York Times, Time, Newsweek, Forbes, Fortune, you know, Sunday Times Magazine, all these um, magazines couldn't really pay me anymore to go off and do these wonderful photography assignments or these wonderful writing assignments. And they all struggled. Some of them went bankrupt. Uh, so that really put an end to my print career, uh, working for those kinds of publications. And then that really forced me to rethink my storytelling. And that kind of uh, challenge um, then sparked my television career, which which got me thinking about making television and got me into the industry uh, and pushed me to, to, you know, continue to be a storyteller but find a different medium. And that transition was terrible. Uh, that three or four years was really, really rough. Wow. Yeah, because um, I didn't know what I was doing and mm. I made a ton of mistakes. So I was kind of forced to change directions by something that was not in my control, which was this massive financial event um, that that just kind of fast forwarded what was already happening. Like right. before the financial crisis, newspapers and magazines were already suffering. Uh, but the financial crisis really put the nail in the coffin. And all of the publications are shadows of their former self. Yeah. You know, some of them have become 100% online, but they don't send people around the world the way they used to. Um, so, so because of that, and uh, I had to learn how to make television, and no one wanted to make television with me, so I funded my first television show by myself, and I made endless mistakes, partnered with the wrong people, mm. uh, overpaid for things, lost money, you know, a, a, an endless string of difficulties. But through that whole process, 
um, I look back at it and I think, my God, I'm so lucky things happened that way. Right. Because it allowed me to learn how to produce, direct, and present my own shows, wow. uh, which is what I do now. And I do it better now than I did then. And it's only through that no one wanted to work with me did I learn how to do each step or, or execute each level of those different jobs, um, which now allows me to kind of control my storytelling. Instead of just being a host or just being a director or just being a producer, I can now kind of craft this whole and, and share this whole world with people, which, um, which is very exciting. So through that kind of pain and difficulty and through all those mistakes I made on my first production, um, it kind of gave me the confidence to you know, pursue what I'm doing now even much more aggressively. And now it takes you to sort of a, the most extreme places around the world, and you get to meet with um, some of the more interesting people that a lot of other, um, that aren't as exposed to uh, the rest of the audience globally. Yeah. Um, in that, you must find some wisdom. What are some, um, what's the best wisdom that you've sort of received from some of these uh, people uh, that you've met along the way? You know, traveling is... Um Traveling is an amazing thing because it it takes you out of it should take you out of your own head. You know, like you know, we live in our we live in the cities, we live in our own worlds. We're all Instagramming pictures of what we have for lunch. At the end of the day, no one cares. <laughs> you know, in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> and and even you know, and then when we travel, you know, we get to meet new people from new walks of life, new cultures, new religions, and and hopefully that enlightens us that's the goal the world is bigger than us people live in different ways this is part of our education um and and i think the the thing that i get the most from it is is you know i get to meet people in these remote places i i get to i'm privileged enough to be there in the first place so when I do meet these people, when I get, do get to talk to them and understand their stories, it's just humbling. Mm. Um, it's humbling to listen to, and, and for me to understand their happiness. It's, it's humbling for me to be able to come and talk with them and, uh, and connect with them in a very personal way. And, um, and you know, when you, when you make friends from other parts of the world and you understand their life and their perspective, um, you know, it should enhance your own ideas about who you are and what kind of life you want to lead and I think that you know that's that's part of our continued personal growth and that's something we should always be you know trying to achieve so I don't think I've learned like one specific lesson but I definitely have learned that you know the version of myself that is traveling is the best version of me you know, we all have different versions of ourselves. You know, you're a mother, you're a father, you're a brother, a sister, you're an employee, employer, you're a city dweller, you're a mountain man or woman, you know, whatever. So we all have different versions of ourselves. To, to kind of think that we're just one person is is kind of maybe not that enlightened right. because we do play a different role depending on who's around us. And, and I think that it was a pretty early age when I figured out that the version of Ryan Pyle that is traveling in a foreign land and meeting people and learning about their lives um, and trying to kind of tell their story to a wider audience was definitely the version of myself that I kind of liked the best. I, you know, it was the version of me that I slept the best with. You, you, you kind of, you get to travel, you get to see 
uh, globally uh, a lot of sort of the problems that countries would have and there's a little bit of unrest going on especially here in this city right now Hong Kong sure. um, do you have any sort of uh, advice to these kids who, who feel a little bit of hope, hopelessness yeah you know I think I think young people put a lot uh, way you know I do a lot of talks at schools mm-hmm. um, I'm very lucky I, I get to speak to a lot of high school students I get to speak to a lot of university students um, I get to speak to a lot of young people so uh, I just feel like young people put way too much pressure on themselves mm. to to know what it is they want to do in their life. You know, like, I, I remember I was in um, I was in the northeast of the United States at, at one of these boarding schools, and there were, like, 16-year-old kids that were telling me, like, they already want to be lawyers and bankers. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> why? And, 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 you know, when I was 16, I wanted to be a banker. And then... You know, or when I was like 12, I wanted to be a professional basketball player. You know, right. like the, I think that I think there's some element of of overconnectivity that that puts pressure on young people. Like the fact that we're all so connected, the fact that you know we can make these great claims about ourselves on social media and make us feel like we're secure and understanding who we are and then make everyone else around us insecure. Right. You know, and I think I think that this has a, a huge uh, impact on young people because if a young person doesn't know what they want to be when they grow up, if a young person doesn't know what university they want to go to, if a young person doesn't have a clear path, then they'll feel stress and anxiety right. and hopelessness. And, and if I had any advice to young people, I would just say embrace the hopelessness. Um, embrace the fact that you don't know what you want to be. Embrace the fact that you still have choices. Embrace the fact that you're not tied into one thing for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You know, as you evolve into who you are, um, it's not one thing. Every three or five years throughout your whole life, you're going to change. Your tastes are going to change. Your desires are going to change. Your ideas about who you are and what you want are going to change. You know, that's why people change jobs so often. Um, sadly, that's why a lot of relationships don't work out. Mm. You know, people are constantly changing. So this idea that young people have that they can just lock themselves into one thing and hold on to it as some kind of safety net, whether it's a job or a relationship or some kind of uh, lifestyle, I think is really wrong. Um, you know, embrace who you are and embrace the messiness uh, and embrace the uncertainty because it's it can be beautiful and, and it can force you into thinking outside the box and and think outside the box and, and enjoy it. I mean, you know, if there's any young people who are in university and you don't know what you want to do, it's okay. When I was in university, I studied international politics. You know, yeah. there was one year where I was like, I'm definitely going to work for the United Nations. <laughs> um, you know, and then... What did I? Do? Yeah, before university, I was into banking because my dad was a banker. So you get influences from your parents, obviously. And then when I was in university, I studied international politics and political philosophy. So I thought I could like, I was interested in global governance. And then, and then when I graduated university, I again had a whole different set of ideas. And then when I first traveled to China, I had a whole different set of ideas. And um, and I think. And I think the best thing that young people can do if, if you're feeling hopeless is to travel because I see travel as being very therapeutic and incredibly good for, for personal growth and personal development because 
what it does is, is travel allows you to think. And I think that when you travel, you learn not only about the country or the place that you're traveling in at that moment, but I think there's also a lot of learning about yourself. I think there's a lot of reflection. I think you, you see the world around you and it reflects on you. And I feel like you have a greater sense of self or maybe a more clear sense of self. And I also feel like there's less distraction when you travel. Um, you might have more time to think, to pontificate, to, to watch a sunset and actually think about who you are and what you want. Whereas this feeling of hopelessness, I think, can come from constant distraction and an inability to just sit with your own thoughts and really understand who you are and what you want. And, uh, and that's a shame. And, you know, that's, that's a huge problem today because we do live in a very digitally distracted world and we do live in these massive cities where you're never alone. And, you know, um, sitting on the top of a mountain in western China and watching the sunset while drinking tea for two hours, you know, is a beautifully enlightening process. And you never know what's going to cross through your brain and what kinds of things you can hold on to. I think that you touched on something there that's very uh, relevant for, uh, I guess, today's digital age, the, the entire over-connectivity uh, part. And even if these kids were on top of that mountain drinking tea for two hours, they're bound to take out that phone and yeah. check something, sure. uh, put on Instagram. So you got to go to places where there's no mobile phone access, mm-hmm. and and you should go to places where you don't. You should go to places where you don't speak the language. Right. You know, force yourself to live in a, another person's world, and uh, and force yourself to to disconnect. And I think that that can be hugely beneficial. And, you know, for, the, for young people out there who are feeling hopeless and lost, um, you'll learn a lot about yourself if you want to travel and explore the world a little bit, if you have those means. Yeah. And if you don't, then I would suggest working or volunteering abroad so at least you can in- engage with a different way of life and a different culture and a different society as a way of kind of helping you understand yourself better. Yeah, that's an interesting concept on the overconnectivity. Um, That's what my whole TV show is about, yeah. you know, like whether I'm extreme trekking in a desert or a mountain, the whole idea is to connect with nature and the whole idea is to get out of the city and to have an honest experience with yourself in a beautiful place and, uh, and to leave the stresses of the city behind. And I think that, you know, we've created these wonderful cities that are very comfortable to live in, but we need to remember to get out every now and then. And... Uh, and I'm not going to suggest, you know, deep down inside we're all cave men and cave women and we all need to, like, get back to nature. But there is something to that. There, there is a healing there. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Now, this, there's a little bit of a time machine question. Um, if you could go back in time and talk to your 15 or 20-year-old self, what would you tell him? Uh, relax. It's going to all, you know, be okay. You know, I think... The anxiety that young people feel about who they are and what they want is intense. And that's part of being a teenager, and that's part of being a young person, and, um, and that's part of the world that we live in. You know, when we, when we, you know, our confidence is lacking when we're young because we're not fully formed people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that, that there's a lot of stress and anxiety about knowing what to do at a young age. And I think that something that I would have gone back and told myself is I'd be like, look, it's going to get a little messy for a few years, but enjoy it because those are going to be some great years and you're going to meet some amazing people and you're going to have some good friends 
and you're going to have great memories, but you know, they're not going to be the, m the most stable. But then after that, you'll start to figure out what you want to do and things will get a little bit more stable and you're going to have to work really hard. So just enjoy, you know, the messiness for a little while, you know, and, and don't, don't, don't try to force things. When things are ready to happen, they'll happen. You know, always work hard. Always work on your reputation. Always treat people well. Always have ideas. Um, but, but, um, but don't put too much pressure on yourself to really lock things down at a young age because, you know, you are still growing and developing and you are going to change drastically. I hope that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, it's Asia Society's uh, 30th anniversary in January of 2020. Uh, what was your first trip to China or Hong Kong or Asia? What was your initial impression like? So I played, um, I played Division I basketball for the University of Toronto when I was uh, a younger man, and, uh, and I loved it. And then when, what happened to me was when I graduated from university, uh, I wasn't good enough to play professional basketball. So all of a sudden I kind of had this huge you know, hole in my heart. Um, I didn't have to practice four hours a day. Uh, I had all this energy. I wasn't sore and tired all the time. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. So uh, because I had taken a few courses in university about Asian history and politics in China, I took a few courses on China. I thought, you know what? If I'm going to just stay in China for, the, or sorry, if I'm just going to stay in Canada for the rest of my life and, and, and get a job and have a family and do kind of normal traditional Canadian style things, then I'm going to go to China and really go and check it out. So I planned a trip to uh, China in September 2001. So I, I graduated in May 2001 from the University of Toronto, and then I worked all summer. And I planned a trip, and I actually left to China uh, just after the September 11th attacks in New York City. Wow. And uh, there were lots of people you know, around who were telling me not to go to China or not to travel during this time, which was kind of crazy because I felt like China would be the safest place to go anyways. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so in September 2001, I flew to Hong Kong and started my journey here uh, and explored the city a little bit, and then I went across to Shenzhen. And then I went to Guangzhou, and then I went up to Changsha, and then I went to Wuhan, and then I saw the Three Gorges Dam, and then I went out to Nanjing, Shanghai, and I was actually in Shanghai when they announced the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and they had like a million people out on the streets celebrating. Wow. That was cool. Yeah. Uh, that was good to be there for. And then from Shanghai, I went up to um, Shandong Province, Jinan. I climbed Taishan, the Taishan Mountain. That was great. And then I went to Beijing, and then from Beijing, you know, I did all the touristy things, Summer Palace, Great Wall, and then from Beijing I went to Xi'an, saw the Terracotta Warriors and the Xi'an City Wall. And then from Xi'an, that's when my trip got awesome, because then, then I was kind of out on my own. And, and I think it's also fair to say at this time in 2001, right after the September 11th attacks, there were a lot less tourists in China. Right. And then once I, got, once I went west of Xi'an, I was by myself. So... From Xi'an, I went to Lanzhou. From Lanzhou, I went to Jiayuguan and saw the last section of the Great Wall of China. And then I went to Dunhuang and saw the caves. And then I went out to Turfan, into the Turfan Oasis in Xinjiang. And then I went to Urumuchi. And then from Urumuchi, I went out to Aksu Lake, which is out on the border with Kazakhstan and China. And then I came back and I went out to Kashgar. 
And then I went to the border of China and Pakistan, which was incredible along the Karakom Highway. And then I came, and then I tried to go south into to western Tibet from Xinjiang, and that road was off limits, so they sent me back to Kashgar. And then I took a train from Kashgar all the way back to Qinghai, and I went to Xining, and then I went to Golmud, and then from Golmud, that's another entry point into Tibet, to Tibet. I was trying to get to Tibet. And then from Golmud, I hitchhiked on the back of a truck for 26 hours from Golmud to Lhasa. And at the time, it was pretty easy to get into Tibet. Like right. they didn't, it was, now it's much harder. You need permits and you need to be part of a group. But back in the day, you just jumped on the back of a truck with a bunch of other Tibetans. But yeah, we did 26 hours in the back of a truck. Wow. And that's a tough road. There was a couple stretches that were like 5,000 meters above sea level. It got pretty cold. Um, but then I got into Lhasa and I explored Lhasa and then I went to Shigatse, Latse, and then I went to the Mount Everest base camp. And this was before they had the road built. So I had to walk there and it was about 70 kilometers. Whoa which was pretty intense. And then I went back to Lhasa, and then I took a bus out to Litang, and then I was in, and then I went to Chengdu and saw the pandas, and then I went down to Lijiang, Dali, Kunming. Yeah, and then I worked my way out, Guilin, Yangshuo, Shenzhen, and then back to Hong Kong. So that whole trip was about th three months, 90 days. And I think I had a budget of like 15 US dollars per day. Wow. And it was no problem. Uh, you yeah. just stay in the, you know, you stay in the guest house next to the uh, bus station or the train station, and you know, a bowl of noodles or something was dirt cheap. But it's funny. I was that was right after my basketball career was over, and I think my bas during my basketball career, I was kind of artificially strong, like I had worked out a lot, yeah. and my body was extra strong. I didn't use drugs or anything like that, but um, I was bulked up more than natural. Right. Uh, because of all the lifting and um, but I lost 35 pounds in three months uh, oh. traveling around in China so I lost all my muscle and I came back a skinny a skinnier man um, <laughs> but yeah so that whole trip in China kind of got me for the first time really interested in storytelling really interested in interviewing people learning about different ways of life and when I went back and when I flew from Hong Kong back to to Canada uh, I got home just in time for Christmas and then during that Christmas I decided I was going to move back to China so then um, I told my family that I was going to live abroad and, and live in China, and that was, that was it. I never looked back. And here you are. And here I am. Wow, that's probably one of the more amazing first trip to Asia China stories that, um, that I've heard about. It, it, was an ambitious, <laughs> it was an ambitious journey. But I, you know what? It, it was amazing. I got to plan all my own logistics. I got to plan where I had slept, who I met, where I went, what I did. And... Um, and I loved it. I loved the planning of it. I loved the execution of it. I loved changing the plans and meeting new people. And it was, uh, again, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, we're all different versions of ourselves. Right. And that version of myself for that first trip in China was a whole new version of myself I didn't even know existed. Yeah. And I loved that Ryan, you know, like it's crazy to say, but, you know, that was a, a version of me that was alive, excited to wake up every morning. Uh, wanting to know as much as possible every day about where I was and what was going on and, and what people did for their lives and how people lived. And, and I was just constantly curious. And I think, I think too, you know, my sporting career was very intense. And I think that when you play sports, you don't grow up as a very well-rounded individual. You know, you don't have a lot of hobbies. You just play sports. Uh, and with my sporting career behind me, it opened up a whole new you know, avenue of interests. And, and then when I started to travel, I started to really realize that you know there's a lot of other things i love doing and writing and photography were kind of at the top of the list
and that's kind of where it all started. And then, and then I started working for some local newspapers and magazines in China, English language ones like That Shanghai and City Weekend, which are two pretty popular ones. And then uh, I started working for the South China Morning Post, and then I started working with airline magazines, and then a few years later I got in with people like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and and doing more of the bigger journalism work, um, and that's kind of how my career developed, all from that first trip. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. He sort of the curious extreme explorer Ryan was born there, and yeah, here you are today. And uh, sort of any last words for our audience? Uh, your new show is coming up. Yeah, so um, my new show is coming out, or it might be out already by the time this goes live. So it's called Extreme Treks, and it's on BBC Earth. And uh, again, it's a show that is born out of a love of being outside and a love of uh, wanting to trek and climb and hike and and just move through some of the most beautiful places in the world. And uh, this is now, we filmed already in Tanzania, Morocco, China, the USA, Peru, Italy, Oman, Russia, Iceland, Laos, Papua New Guinea, Bolivia, Argentina, Jordan, and Uganda. So this current season three, which is coming out, uh, is going to be incredible and hopefully take people to some some magical places. I think the highlights of, of this season three that comes out is... Uh, we climbed Aconcagua, which is the 7,000-meter peak in Argentina, the highest mountain in South America. And we also went um, and did the Kokoda Trail, which is a 100-kilometer uh, journey through Papua New Guinea, which is the trail where the Australians and the Japanese fought in World War II wow. um, and uh, had a bloody history and basically pushed the Japanese back. And many thought that Australian win saved the Australian mainland. Wow. And, uh, and didn't allow Japan to use Papua New Guinea as a jumping-off point to take over or attack Australia. So uh, that kind of history of, of Papua New Guinea, plus the high mountain stuff, plus guerrilla tracking in Uganda, it's a pretty uh, wonderful season, and it's uh, great to be able to work with BBC um, to travel the world and tell these stories. Well, we can't wait to watch it. Uh, such an incredible life and an incredible story. And uh, uh, any way that our, our users can get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Ryan Pyle. I'm on Twitter at Ryan Pyle, Facebook Ryan Pyle. Uh, you can go to ryanpyle.com um, to, to find out what I, where I am and what's going on. I'm in Hong Kong quite often doing speaking engagements. Uh, I will be here in November speaking at the, with the Royal Geographical Society of Hong Kong. Uh, I'm also at Asia Society at least once a year, mm-hmm. usually in the spring. Right. And uh, I tend to do like a live screening of one of my shows plus a Q&A. Uh, I also do some school visits here. So, yeah, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, come by, um, listen to me speak, you know, introduce yourself and tell me your story. Well, thank you for sharing your story, Ryan. Thank you for having me.